I'm Dave Cauley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast, Cold. Don't miss Cold's new Season 3, where I look into the unsolved disappearance of Cherie Warren, a woman last seen leaving her job at a Salt Lake City office in 1985. Police cast suspicion on Cherie's estranged husband and boyfriend, but never made any arrests or recovered Cherie's remains. Find Cold Season 3, The Search for Cherie, anywhere you get your podcasts. Hey, welcome to Project Recovery, a podcast about addiction. More importantly, it's about recovery. I'm Casey. That is Dr. Matt Woolley. And uh, we're just coming off the heels of a Halloween. Yeah. It was a good Halloween. Uh, yeah. Did you dress up? No. Do you well, think- I, I wore a, a T-shirt with Frankenstein on the front, but I wear that shirt a lot. I like Frankenstein. Well, I'm going to tell you what my kids yeah. tell me. Dad, yeah. That isn't Frankenstein. That's Frankenstein's monster. That, that's true. Frankenstein got me. was the guy. Is Dr. Victor Frankenstein. Yes. And every year with the kids, uh, we watch uh, Young Frankenstein, which oh, is one of my all-time that. favorite movies. They're putting on their- uh, Frankenstein. Yeah, it's Frankenstein. The best part, a lot of people don't realize, is that that Igor's hump moves throughout the yeah, movie. it does. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it's, it's awesome. It's classic. I love you it. You mean Igor's hump? Yeah. Yeah. Let me ask you this. Um, does someone's choice in Halloween costume say something about their psyche? It can. I mean, I think I think that there's uh, with all the the upsurge in cosplay over the last decade. You know, that's become an industry, really. Uh-huh. Um, there's been some psychologists have sort of psychoanalyzed the fact that you know when you cosplay or Halloween, you dress up. You know, it's kind of a chance to for some people to let their inner whatever come out. So mm-hmm. sometimes you see some pretty outrageous costumes and that might reflect. I saw a guy at the gym and he was working at the gym uh-huh. and he was dressed up what I assumed was a commander in one of the Star Wars universes. Okay. But I didn't want to say anything because I wasn't sure. And so I did my workout and as I was leaving, I went to a guy who worked with that guy and I go, hey, so what was that costume? Was it Star Wars? And he goes, no, it's some anime. And then he went into a long description. Yeah. And then it got me thinking, if you got to explain your Halloween costume, it's probably not a good Halloween costume. Well, so that's, oh, yeah, yes, you and I would agree. Mm-hmm. But I think that for some people, that's their goal. They want to be kind of unique and different. And showcase they, what, yes. what's a part of their world. Yeah, their, their uniqueness. So, yeah. I remember when my son Bowden was six and he wanted to be a bad guy. And my ex-wife was like... He wanted to be a bad guy. He just wanted to be a bad guy. I love it. And my ex-wife was like, should we be worried? And I go, I I don't think so. I mean, you know, there was... I mean, when I was a kid, I dressed up as Darth Vader. Sure. I mean, you're Well, why do you think Darth Vader was so popular with kids? And still is. Uh, Because he's Luke's father? No. Nobody cares about that. His voice? Well, the voice is there. It's power. It's a powerful mm. figure, big, dark, ominous. Nobody can stop him, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, except for himself, if yeah. you watch all three movies. But um, that's one of the attractions for kids with superhero costumes and often the villains. The villains are powerful and you know on the fringe of society, and, and that's a, kind of a good feeling when you're a kid. And I, and I think you're right. As a kid, sometimes it's just fun to entertain those other parts of your brain or yeah. step out of. Because you're always told to be a good boy. He wanted to be a bad boy. A bad boy. Yeah. One day out of the year, let me be a bad boy. Girls sure. love the curls and bad boys. Yes, they do. Yeah. yeah. Hey, so someone came up to me last week and said, so what do you think you've learned in your recovery? Mm. 
And uh, you know what? Every day I learn something new. And I'm not just saying that because we've got to fill time on a podcast. I really do learn something new about myself. And things that I've, uh, I've learned recently is it's okay just to be okay. You know what I mean? Sometimes it, it, not, it's okay it, to be like good enough. Is that yeah, what I mean? Like you know, things you know are and you just go like okay, average. Average. Yeah. You can't be great at everything. You can try to be great at everything, but well, the reality is, in the world we live in, yeah. you can't be good at it's everything. It's hard every week, though, when we come in here and we hang around with Josh, who really is good at everything. Oh, he's got great hair, great physique. I mean, great yeah, grammar, smart. I mean, he really is valedictorian. He, I, it blows my mind that the guy's single. Yeah. You know. You know what I mean? Well, I think it's a choice. So maybe he's not great at dating. Oh, I maybe we found that. it. That that's could, his Achilles heel. That, He's yeah. not good at dating. That's his kryptonite, huh? Yes. Okay. But what I'm saying is that it's okay to be okay. And you, you know, when you stop and walk down the street and go, "Hey, how you doing? Great." And you hear that nine times. Do you really think all nine people are great, or do they no. think they just say that? It's socially acceptable answer, right? Yeah. Yeah. But it's okay to be okay. Yeah, I agree. And then you know how I'm a big fan. Well, I mean, of- if you think about average, average is sort of a has a negative connotation in our society, but it shouldn't. No, average is just like, hey, we're doing as well as everybody else in whatever we're talking about, and but that when, should be good enough. But when you look at Facebook and Instagram, everybody puts the most extraordinary part of their day right. on there. Sure, and they don't ever show the negative side where they where. I mean, I'll be honest. Early this morning, I jumped out of the bed like a ninja because the dog puked on the floor. You <laughs> You know what I mean? I didn't put that on Instagram. You should have. That but I was awesome. fleet of foot. I mean, yeah. if that had been a robber, yeah. I'd have had the best of them. That's because I was hilarious. nimble. That's funny. I was nimble. You know, last night I heard something fall and crash and woke me up around 1, 1.30. And I didn't even get out of bed. And I forgot about it. And so luckily the house wasn't robbed when I woke up. It was just a shampoo bottle falling in, out of, in the kitchen Maybe or in the bathroom. it was a ghost. A ghost could have been. So I had something similar. I'm sitting next to, well, laying next to the lovely Leslie in bed. Yeah. She wakes me up and she goes, did you hear that? And I go, hear what? And she goes, I think something broke. And I was like, no, go back to bed. So we go back to bed. Yeah. Wake up the next morning. I go in the shower and my shaving mirror had fallen down and cracked. Oh, okay. Had that been someone breaking into the house? They would have had whatever they wanted, I guess. Anything. Yeah. Crazy, right? Yeah. Well, I, I, I was laying there last night thinking- I don't know. If they want the TV, they can have it. I'm not getting up. Like Time That's just how TV. I felt about it. Yeah, there's like whatever. Another thing I learned is that I don't have patience. <laughs> okay. But, but like I don't have patience for certain things. Uh-huh. Like, um, And I'm trying to be more patient with my children uh, and, and, and see their side of it and understand. It's a good place to start with and, patience. And, and, yeah. and try to figure that out. But I'm also very impulsive. Yes, you are. So last Saturday night... I'm emceeing, uh, it's called the Friends of Children's Justice Masquerade Gala. Okay. And what the Friends of Children's Justice do is they help people, mostly young adults, who have been in traumatic or abusive relationships with their parents or loved ones. Oh, okay. And so some of it is sexual abuse and some of it's trauma and a lot of them, and they don't know where to turn, so they go to this place Mm. And they find therapy, they find resources, they find tools to help them process what's going on. Okay. Now, we've seen a lot of that uh, kind of start the addiction process here on this podcast. Definitely. And and it plays into it. Uh, there's a lot of people who get into their addiction through a trauma, mm-hmm. trying to self-medicate, trying to numb, trying to run, trying to hide, whatever it may be. And so there was, I was very honored to be a part of it. And it was a masquerade ball and some some wonderful presenters, and it was good to see some colleagues and all that stuff. But when you go to these events, mm-hmm. they're, they're fundraisers. Sure. 
And so they had this table of just all these cool things. And I stuff saw you could buy that you could buy the money would go to to, to the to the center. OK. And they had, you know, silent auction items. They had raffle items. And I saw this one item. Mm. And I was like, I want that item. <laughs> but I had to work. Right. But lovely Leslie was there with me. OK. So I put her on it. I really wanted to get this item because it meant a lot to me because the person I'm going to give it to meant a lot to me. OK. They believed in me when I didn't believe in myself. They took a chance on me when the rest of the world was like, eh, I don't know. Let's see how this goes out. Yeah. Shut up. Oh, my gosh, Casey. That's amazing. That's a signed soccer soccer ball by the Real Soccer. Oh, my gosh. Thanks, buddy. Thank you. Wow. I was going to give you that for Christmas, but you're I don't making... have patience, and I'm pretty impulsive. <laughs> so I wanted to make well, sure you had that. Your impatience and impulsivity is working in my favor today. Yeah. Uh, this is truly an extremely thoughtful gift and something I will always love. Well, you got to thank the lovely Leslie, because she was a hound. She almost came fist to cuffs with the other person <laughs> betting on that. Well, <laughs> she, uh, she was just hovering. And they call it the very end of a silent auction, Sniper's uh, Delight, because they just sit around and they want to get that last that bit last in thing, so yeah. they can walk away with it. So, Well, that's awfully awfully thoughtful and kind of you. I appreciate that. And Thank you, you for believing what? in uh, me. Let me just say this. Believing in you, never, not believing you never crossed my mind. I've known you long enough, and you know I know that alcohol was not really you, and that you would rise to the top. And I'm not saying that for any other reason than that's what I honestly have always believed. And being your friend has always been a great moment for me, like being able to do the things we've done together. So, you know, I hope you understand that if anybody didn't believe in you, they didn't really know you. Well, I appreciate that, and uh, I don't know if I've ever said thank you enough to you for doing this with me and taking this journey and uh, being my co-host, but more importantly, being my friend. So thank you very much. Bottom of my heart. I appreciate it. Love you. We've got a wonderful show for you today. His name is Brad Shreve. Uh, He's been sober for eight years and he's got a story to tell. Are you ready, my friend? I am. I don't have a soccer ball for you. (laughs) Fishing rod next time. Okay, I got you. Stick around. More Project Recovery. We'll be right back. Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. She was tear-gassed and beaten. Images of thousands desperate to escape Taliban oppression filled our news feeds. More than 80,000 Afghans made it to America. But the story didn't end there. It was very cold. There was no power, no heat. Who would help our newest neighbors? I'm Andrea Smartin. In Stranger Becomes Neighbor, you'll hear the stories of some remarkable refugees who left their homes and their dreams behind only to start over from zero. Their only possession was three blankets. And you'll meet Americans who stepped up to help them. You want me to come when you deliver your baby. What can one person do in the face of an international disaster decades in the making? That's Stranger Becomes Neighbor. Find us at kslpodcast.com, follow us on Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen. 
Hey, welcome back to the podcast. I'm Casey Scott. That's Dr. Matt Woolley. He's a clinical psychologist. I'm just uh, well, awesome. Well, I don't know about awesome, but I'm a man in recovery. I've got four years of sobriety under my belt, and uh, I think we've got a great platform to help others. Like our guest today, it's Brad Shreve. How are you? I'm good. And Brad, you've been sober for now eight years? Coming up on eight years this November. Yep. And uh, it's still exciting, right? Oh, dude, every day. Yeah. Every day is exciting. I remember when I was sitting in the 12-step rooms, and somebody would get up there and go, I wouldn't wish this disease upon my worst enemy, <laughs> but I wouldn't change the fact that I got it for the life of me. Yep. And I'm going to tell you now, like I've told you before on this podcast, I still don't know if I'm there. You know, and I don't think this is the best thing that's ever happened to me. I think me getting a second chance at life is amazing. Uh, you know for what I sure. mean? But I would have loved to have my kids not have to go through the trauma, the disappointment, and everything that I put them through. <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean, I, I wish I, I can't go back and change that. Well, it's a catalyst to change, right? Yeah. So it is a crisis in mm-hmm. your life for sure and your whole family's life. We talk about how, you know, it's a family disease, it affects yeah. everybody, but it's a catalyst to, to change. And in your case, it's been positive change. And most of the guests that come on our show get to share stories of positive change. So I could see how it's sort of a mixed bag. On the one hand, you'd never want to have it. On the other hand, you, you're glad you had it because it, it created that change. It'd be interesting to ask my kids. Uh, because I know my two oldest, and, and I'm not saying this to be boastful, but are proud of the dad they have now. Yeah. Oh, you, you know what I mean? And yeah. the dad they have now was way better than the dad they had. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, and that, and it makes me feel good, but it breaks my heart. The <laughs> fact that I gave them a bad dad for so many years. I mean, I, I know I was doing the best I could with the knowledge that I had and trying to figure it all out. Right. But the fact that uh, they have to have those years of a bad dad breaks my heart. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't make me feel good. For sure. I, I, I think everybody who's in recovery could relate to what you just said. At the same time, maybe that's motivation to just keep looking forward, not look back too much. And that's what I'm doing. We got Brad here with eight years of sobriety underneath his belt. Um, but where does the story of Brad begin? Oh, man. I grew up in South Ogden, Bonneville High, graduate. A Laker. A Laker, man. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you? Ogden you High. Ogden. Oh, dude. Tigers. I'm sorry. That's all right. Yeah. <laughs> I dated all your cheerleaders. Did but you? Go ahead. <laughs> I tried to date your cheerleaders. <laughs> yeah. I wasn't quite there. But, uh, yeah, man, grew up in South Ogden, good family. And it's so interesting. I hear people say that it's a family disease, you know, and I, I look back on that, but I, I just remember my, my parents partying normally, if you will, whatever that is. Yeah, like Holidays. a gentleman or yeah, whatever. Man, yeah, holiday, <laughs> drink like a gentleman. Yeah. Uh, okay. But, you know, and so I, I often pondered where I got this thing, but I don't ponder that much anymore. But, you know, I, I seem having a good time. And cousins, we'd go deer hunting and always alcohol involved. I see that was a really good time. So obviously, I'm like, oh, I coordinated that with, with a good time. The association. Yeah, Exactly, it's there. the association. So party through high school. Didn't get into much trouble. I just normal trouble. But this disease decided to wait a little while to attack me into my late 40s. Oh, so it, so it really didn't get you until your 40s. No, I was, I was, I was what you call probably a functioning alcoholic. Mm-hmm. For a good number of years, and then drugs got into the picture. But yeah, it waited until. So, so normal upbringing, uh, family yeah. partied a little bit. Uh, you associated good times with alcohol, which many do. Mm-hmm. Uh, you made it through high school. Uh, were you athletic? Did you do sports? All that stuff. No, I, I wanted to do sports, but I had to work for on a farm for a little bit to save up for my braces. Oh, <laughs> so you paid for your own braces? I did. 
Yeah, so I was pretty athletic and, you know, people, oh, dude, you need to do this and that. But now I had to work for a little bit to pay for my own braces and Adidas. Adidas. Yeah, <laughs> and I had those Adidas. And so uh, then you, I assume you get married or did. Did you go to college? No college, passed up a partial scholarship in commercial art, but I couldn't sit still long enough. School wasn't really my bag. I enjoyed school, social level, but as far as college and all. So I got into construction right out of high school. And then um, did that for a while, got married in 1990, mm-hmm. had Landon. You've met him. Yeah, I used to work out with him at the gym yeah. up in Ogden. When I'd have to go up to Ogden to blow <laughs> twice a day, <laughs> right. I was already up there, so I'd go to the gym. Yeah. And then I, I met your son, and, yeah. and a wonderful kid, and, and very charismatic. And I mean, it's, it's like his dad. Yeah. yeah, no, yeah, yeah man. <laughs> He's coming up on five years. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah, very thankful for that. Good. So you got married in 1990. Yep. Had Landon. Yep. And um, did your is your wonderful wife Ashley here? Or was this was she the wife? No, no. This is my second wife. Last wife. And so, yeah, second and last. <laughs> yep. Uh, she, she's not in her head, yes. Uh, but your first <laughs> wife, uh, did she drink with you? You know, she, no. Well, she did, but we partied what it normal was, mm-hmm. New Year's Eve, weekends. I always, you know, back then I started drinking like it in the evenings, mm-hmm. like two or three beers just to calm down, but that was just what you did. Well, especially in the construction oh, side. Oh, yeah, man. A lot of times at 3.50, the the day would be done. At 3.55, the first beer was cracked. Yeah, man. Or even 3.45. Yeah. You know, so we'd have a couple of beers. I'd get home and drink a few beers. I actually used to run. Mm-hmm. I'd go run a good five miles, come back and drink a six-pack, you know, mm-hmm. get a little counterproductive there. But, you know, and <laughs> was it, you know, and it's so interesting. Was I an alcoholic? My dad used to say, hey, you know, if you can't go a week without drinking, because, you know, he'd come over. You see a pile of beer cans in the garage because I throw them up there and I crush them on weekends or whatever, and he'd he'd take notice. And I now, thought, was no. your dad a religious man or just no? Not necessarily. My stepdad, the guy that raised me, yeah, but, yeah. So he would come over and see them and then and, and, and kind of question your drinking sure. habits. Sure, yeah. But you know, mid twenties, you know, hey, built my house at twenty five years old. Mm-hmm. I've got it going on. I'm rocking. This is I've got everything under control. You know, drinking is just another good part of it. Yeah. And he'd say, well, if you can't. So I remember I tested myself. I did go a week. And I thought, well, that kind of sucked. It was a little boring. So I just cut back drinking. And then, you know, and that guy was telling me earlier before the podcast, wake up one morning. Holy crap. Look where I'm at. Look. Whoa. Look where I'm at. Well, I don't want to jump too far into that. But, sure. Uh, so you, you drink like the gentleman, killing a six pack in the evening. Yeah. Uh, and you and uh, your first wife and everything seems to be pretty good. You know, she she noticed my drinking when we had arguments. <clears throat> I, I'd look for an excuse to go out and drink more. Mm-hmm. So we'd have an argument instead of staying at home and arguing out like an, like an adult talking through it. I, oh, I'm just going to take off, grab me a six pack, drive around. Who does that? But that's what I did. And you know? I can tell you, because I can speak from experience, um, that's an addict using manipulation uh, to get what they want. Uh, sure. Justifying, start, right? Justifying. Oh, yeah, justify. Justifying. Yeah. Oh, my wife, you know, we had an argument yeah. or a lot of stress at I'm work. Gonna go, I'm going to go chill out. Right. I'm going to go have a six-pack, then I'll come back. I'll calm be, down. I, yeah. I've actually known people who did the the exercise thing as justification. Well, I just ran five miles, so now <laughs> I can drink, right? Like, I, I've exercised, so now I can it drink. It evens out. Yeah, yeah right? And so, yep. I mean, I think addict brain is very sophisticated at its justifications. I was I was like that in my active addiction. I mean, w- w- towards the end, I was way out of control, so I wasn't working out <laughs> at all. But I would do that, so it would be another tool in my belt if somebody said, "Hey, you're an alcoholic." Really? I I go to the gym six days a week. Yeah. I go to my job 
Uh, that doesn't sound like an alcoholic to me, no. does it? <laughs> right. Yeah. You know, and, 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 and that is something that you pull out of your back pocket anytime you want to pull don't, that. Don't you think maybe a little bit of that also is generational think? Meaning, like, oh, we sure. didn't really talk about what is an alcoholic, what's problematic drinking. I don't remember ever having that be part of the high school curriculum or anything growing up where people said, hey, just because you can go to your job, just because you can, you know, maintain doesn't mean you don't have a problem. I don't remember those conversations. I think nowadays that's becoming more because addiction has become a bigger part of the collective conversation in our communities. But I mean, some of it, yeah, it's, it's definitely justification, no doubt. But I think some of it was also ignorance. Oh, and, 100%. And oh, yeah. We we didn't know growing up. We I I thought if you'd have asked me when I was a high school kid, you know, what does an addict look like? I'd have probably said, "Well, go down to Pioneer Park yeah, and exactly. look at the homeless folks. That's an addict." Yet there are so many people in our communities getting up, going to work, going to the gym, and they are addicts. Well, yeah. to be honest with you, I thought that until I checked myself into rehab. Sure. Oh, I, yeah. Even when I sat down in the first process group, I was like, "I'm not an addict." I called my mom, said, "I'm in here for Bud Light, mom. These guys are in here for you know meth, heroin, and opioids." But, yeah. You know, she was, "No, you're supposed." to be there yeah you know and then i don't know also remember somebody going hey if you want to see if you're an alcoholic quit for a week and if you do then you're okay yeah Yeah. let's go you know very productive i can go for a week i can go for a month so does alcohol cause the end of your first marriage no you know it you know it's so interesting because it may have because when every time i'd get home after an argument how much did you drink i said i drank a six-pack but i'm certain that contributed so to let me, demise. was your, I've had a six pack. Was that your standard answer? Because I always told my ex-wife that I had two knowing sure. <laughs> darn well that it wasn't two. You know, my attic wasn't really prevalent then. So it didn't really, I mean, I didn't lie much then, you know, little white lies, but I said, I drank a six pack, maybe a six pack, you know, six pack of talls. Yeah. It was a six pack, <laughs> yeah. you know, we're not talking volume here. Yeah. 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 There were six of them. Yeah. Technicalities. Yeah. Yeah. Six yeah. of what? Yeah. 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 And so, um, when does it uh, when does it become obvious to you that you got yourself into some sort of addiction? When did it become obvious? Yeah. Oh, dude, that's a good question. I started questioning my <clears throat> my habits, if you will, my vices. Mm-hmm. Probably just before I met her, probably seventeen, eighteen years ago. Okay. And I started, dang, dude, you you, you know, people make comments. Oh, Brett, you know we restaurants i couldn't go to a restaurant unless they serve beer well why can't you go to a restaurant unless well there's got to be a reason there but i would never i've never pondered that question you know it's interesting that you say that because i was similar to that i mean yeah. so my, my wife or my girlfriend or whatever they would say hey uh we're going to this restaurant my first question was is there a bar yep. not what kind of food <laughs> yeah. what kind of cuisine it was yeah. is there even, a bar even no. dating girls dude yeah when i was single you know these these really nice people i knew would try and line me up and I remember I'd take them out on the first date. If they didn't order a beer or a whiskey, whatever, well, this isn't going to work out. So, tell, so oh, yeah, there's not a problem, though. You know, alcohol hasn't become a problem. It's just they but don't it drink. Sound, it sounds like you were not You were in that what we call pre-contemplation stage. You hadn't really <laughs> thought through yet what you were doing, but yeah. alcohol had woven its way into all of your decision-making. Exactly. Whether it was dating or where to eat or how to deal with frustration, it was alcohol, alcohol, alcohol. Yeah, the driving force. Yeah, dude. So, Andrew, looking back on that, to to this day, coming up on eight years, I still look back like, 
I talked to my brother. Everything we did involved alcohol. And now it doesn't. I'm like, holy crap, I can go camping. I can actually do these things without... And they did teach me that in the program. And I would recommend the deer hunting sober. I think that's a little safer. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. I don't, I don't, I just, <laughs> just but it's saying. crazy how much that goes hand in hand. <laughs> Everything oh, went I, hand in hand. I know. That's why deer yeah. hunting's extra dangerous. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and I would celebrate. I had a good day at work. Oh, I caused a drink. Bad day. It didn't matter. I, any, good day, any, bad day. Yeah. Good day, bad day. You know, I was drinking. So now drinking is in the driver's seat of your life. Uh, it's affecting Very most well of your decisions. Yep. Um, but drinking wasn't, uh, your only jam, if you will. No drugs, opiates. And how, how do you get into opioid? You know, I remember going into the program, my counselor asked me, what is your first memory of a high? Like, what an interesting question. What is your first paragoric? I mean, you guys remember what paragoric is. I don't. It is the opium based. Well, not opium. I think it did have opium. It, it was more of a cough serum. Yeah, it, it was a it was a cough syrup, right? And it had a lot yeah. of lot and of. And I think in it, it did have opium yeah. in it. Is yeah. that scissor? Because <clears throat> that's what the kids it tastes are like black licorice. I don't know, but it, it, that's old school. So old I'm, school. Yeah, that's 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 old school. But I, I mean, yeah, I think that was one of the reasons. You know, those sorts of cough syrups were very effective so to speak, yeah, man. with the yeah. coating, you yeah, know, yeah. and all of that. Yep. And so it uh, that's why we have... I actually looked it up and it was yeah. opium-based. But they you have to get a prescription my... for that now, but it used to be yeah. over the counter. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I remember my mom giving me with a stomach ache. And I just felt this sense of euphoria. Mm-hmm. Like, whoa. And so they asked me that. That's probably eight, nine, ten years old. That was my first memory of euphoria. And what was your question again? Well, uh, when did I re- when did I start? When did, when did opioids come into the picture? You know, I, I'd be injured at work, obviously, in construction, and I would take them as directed responsibly, but I remember I'd take them, and I, you know, because I was drinking, and I'd get that effect that you get when you mix opiates mix with alcohol, yeah. mm-hmm. and then... Which is very, very dangerous. Oh, dude. Tell me. Yeah. I mean, it's very, very dangerous. Way dangerous, but <laughs> not to me. Yeah. You know, that Those goes rules up. apply to everybody else, but me. That's an adequate way of thinking. Right. Rules apply to everybody. Yeah, man, exactly. But, um... Um, but he used to jam with. He brought over some Jägermeister. I had a, some leftover prescription drugs. I think it was Laura Tabs. Ate a few of those. It was a Friday. And I remember this day. You know, how, how weird. Ate a few of those. And I, I think this is when the devil, what I call my disease, decided to jump in. That's yeah, when the door was open. That's when the door was open. I'm going to make him remember this feeling of false euphoria, Now how I look at it. Ate those, drank some whiskey, cloud nine. And I thought, well, hey, how can I incorporate this in my life now? This feels so good, but no, you got to be responsible, Brad. This company you work for has put a lot of trust in you, truck, everything. And then it just wove its way into my life very, very cleverly. And how about how old were you at that time? <clears throat> oh, mid-40s. And had you ever, you, you know, you said you partied a little growing up. Yeah. Did, were drugs ever No, man, it's it? interesting. Drugs used to scare me because we used to work up on a farm and a lot of those dudes were out there doing on a beautiful day. I've always been a nature guy, just love. And I'd look at them sitting around all zoned out like, hey, man, it's beautiful outside. Yeah. But then I did try, mar- I did like marijuana. I did that for a little bit. And then I got some lace stuff, whatever, and I gave that up. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, growing up, I. But that's interesting. That it is interesting. It kind of how old? So you said I've known a lot of people that work their life in construction, and you're right, a lot of injuries. Yeah. How old were you when you first started getting prescribed opiates? Were, were you in your twenties? Twenties, thirties. So, know. so there was a span of twenty years before 
And I can see why you'd say, you know, that's when the door opened to your disease because there was something different about that day. And I, I always, I'll always find that interesting. Yeah. What decided to kick in? I, I think it was, you know, my disease, like, hey, it's time to start taking this guy out. Start destroying everything he's built yeah. and the people around him. So let's get this thing rolling. And part of it's also biology, to be honest with you. When wow. we're younger, we have faster metabolisms. We we move through things more quickly. We get into our midlife and our 40s. Things start to wow. slow down and change. And so the effect of alcohol, for example, or marijuana or opiates, anything, changes throughout our lifetime. And so that's why... Um, People who maybe have never developed an addiction, they can still say, well, I can't, I don't drink like I used to. Like when I was in my 20s or even in my 30s, but now I'm in my 40s or 50s and I, I, I just don't drink like that anymore. It, it affects us differently. So it, it might have been that. And the other thing is stressors. Was there anything stressful going on in your life when you were in your 40s? You know, I... My divorce was a little stressful. A little bit, yeah. I think that's the understatement of the <laughs> year. Well, you know, in the room. Yeah. Th- things yeah. weren't very good. And, you know, divorce, but even if they're not good, still a divorce is taxing on uh, I mean, the mind, body, and the soul. It, you know, I mean, real. and you got kids and every, I mean, that, uh, And that's another thing to keep in mind, uh, how, how we drink or use drugs and the effect that it has on us. Biology is part of it, so age plays a role. But honestly, stress, our, our, our mental health, how we're feeling emotionally, uh, if, you, if everything's good in life, you don't feel quite the need to escape. Uh, sure. And therefore, things like drugs and alcohol aren't quite as enticing. However, when life is pretty stressful, when you're struggling a little bit and you're in your midlife, which is naturally a time where we reflect on who we are, yeah, it, that can play a big role too. Well, you're listening to Project Recovery. We're going to hear more of Brad's story in just a second. We're going to find out when opioids really took over the driver's seat. Hey, welcome back to the podcast. I'm Casey Scott. That's Dr. Matt Willier. Our guest today is Brad Shreve. Uh, and he said the first time that uh, the drug started, wasn't even not the first time, but one of the times you remember most is when uh, you had multiple uh, Laura Tabs and Jägermeister. Yep. And uh, you had a euphoric feeling that uh, you said uh, opened up the door for your disease to come in. Yeah, exactly. And then it stayed with me, that feeling, because I could kind of let that feeling go and just keep it till the weekend, because weekends is when, you know, you turned it on. Yeah. Or at least when I turned it on. Um, but, uh, and it stayed with me. And I'm like, that feeling was amazing. And so I the, still so find it, that interesting. So you kind of felt yourself wanting to chase that feeling. Oh, dude, yeah. yeah. Every day after that, I was like, well, hey, in the back of how, you know, how can I incorporate that in my everyday life now? Because you want to more take more. that with you everywhere. Ex- every, bingo. Everywhere. Everywhere. And I, was, I wasn't a day drinker then. You know, it was, I used to think, okay, if I can't wait till 7 o'clock in the evening to have two, couple, three beers, and I've got a problem. <laughs> so 7 o'clock made it just fine. You know, yeah. weekends, it was noonish. Yeah. One o'clock, but after that feeling, uh, I wanted to incorporate that in everyday use, in which I did. I was a day user. So bad, so, bad, bad. So, how does someone in their late thirties, early forties uh, get their pain pills? Were you getting them through a prescription? Were you buying them off the At street? First, yeah, I'd save them. You know, I'd, I'd get hurt, and I would take them, and the pain start go away. Then I'd be like, I'd stockpile them. Like, hey, I'm going to save these. My buddy'd come over, and we'd chew up a few, whatever. And it was on the weekends, and I found you know the attraction was growing and growing and growing. I wanted more, few neighbors that I had you know back then where we used to live. Mm-hmm. And it's so you know I, it's so the devil works in this way with me. 
he, he was putting these things in front of me. You know, he was setting me up in these scenarios to where I could find them. I mean, how do you find a dealer? How do you go and find a dealer to help you support your, your, your habit? I mean, you can't Google it. No, you don't. Well, no, no you, if, I, if you could have, I would have. Yeah. I would have done anything back then. So was it hard to, I mean, as you're talking, I'm thinking, I just finished watching Dope Sick, uh-huh. right? That whole history, which is actually extremely worth watching. Oh, um, yeah. And it's based on a book, which I'm sure is worth reading. I haven't read it. But um, in the beginning of the opioid crisis, it wasn't hard to get them. And, you know, you Doctors could go back were, and yeah. ask your doctor to refill the prescription, and they did. And, and then, you know, the company was were, – they were pushing bigger pills with higher milligrams. And so what was your experience like? You know, here you are, you're a construction worker. That makes sense. You have a lot of injuries. That makes sense. So I could see how a doctor might not even really question. Exactly. You know, it's not yeah. like you were an accountant and they're like, why is this guy <laughs> – keep getting injured and he needs pills yeah like you you were in a job of high risk and yeah. what was your experience like getting the pills? well i was thinking no oh, that that's exactly that's an easy way to get these things so i'd find myself <laughs> before i wouldn't you know shoulder ache whatever oh if i go to the doctor and tell him hey i fell off the ladder they mm-hmm. would be they would you know, x-ray here and there oh you look all right what's your pain scale they i tell them my pain scale and i said you know well, aspirin doesn't really cut it and they'd prescribe me some lower tabs it was like hallelujah even with a cough I remember going into the doctor faking a cough one day. And mm-hmm. so he gave me some cough medicine with the codeine in it. Really? Yeah. So it I was wa- a lot easier back then. I yeah. want to hear the process and the thought <laughs> process uh, of you jumping from a prescribed, prescribed opioid to going to a dealer. Because I know in my mind, making that jump, even you, you can't lie to yourself that there's a problem. You know what I mean? Yeah. If, if, if you're going from getting them a prescription to buying them on the street or a well, corner or someone's house. I agree that that's your mindset now. Yeah. But yes, when you are in active addiction, you can blame everyone else. Well, I need these and the system's broken and that's why I have to go to a dealer. I mean, there there is a lot of justification. And this is just easier. When, when it, it's, yeah, it's easier. It's you know less hassle. You know, if the system Part was better, street, I could yeah. go to the doctor and get it, but it's not. So. Do you remember making the jump to a dealer? I do, dude. Yeah, I remember exactly where I was. Exactly, in a cul-de-sac. This guy, a construction worker, and I walked by his truck, and I seen him sitting in this truck, you know, shaking a bottle, what I assumed to be pain pills. And I, I, I went back and forth, got a little sweaty. It was a, it was the weirdest it was it was the transition, I guess you would call it. Oh, you mm-hmm. were triggered. I was you, triggered. You, saw, you probably heard the shake of the. And I knew I only had a few more left at home. It's like, like Pavlov's dogs. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Why are you worried you only have a few left at home, Brad? It's not even the weekend. That was going through my mind. But here, here's an opportunity to keep this thing going. So I walked up and said, "Hey, you know, do you eat? You know, pain this and that." I sparked a conversation. He said, "Well, just when I need him." He said, "I've got so many of these things." I said, well, hey, would you ever be interested in selling a few? And then there was that awkward moment where I'm thinking, okay, dude, you just you just hit somebody up about buying drugs. And thank goodness back then, he's like, sure. And that's when and then he found out he was a dealer. He's like, Yeah, I've got a few people coming over here and there. Meet me at my house and we'll we'll get this thing rolling. So I did. Mm. And I remember taking his phone number. <clears throat> it's the craziest thing. There's always a spark in the back of my head, what are you doing? What are you doing? What are you doing, Brad? You know, you've got this beautiful wife at home. You got, <laughs> but that goes out the window, along with that number I'd written down for his name and number. Crumpled it up, threw it out the window, went down to the end of the street, turned back around, went and picked it up. Oh. Yeah. But had, had I arrived yet? No. No, man, I just, I love this feeling. 
and hasn't gotten any trouble yet. You know, so where's the problem? You know, where's the problem? But it becomes a problem. Oh, dude. So how does it escalate? <clears throat> From there, I've, you know, it's funny. How does it escalate? From there, I remember I didn't, I, I went to his house and I bought some. I wasn't a day user at that point, but I could not wait to get home. I'd cut my day shorter. And I was in management with this company, you know, I was a very trusted, well-respected guy, knew a lot of contractors, but I couldn't wait to get home and I'd get home earlier. And, uh, was it a problem then? No, then I started, that was always in the back of my mind. What are you doing, Brad? I'd always ask myself that. What are you doing? A lot of self-dialogue. I mean, I had it through much of my addiction. Like where I've said it on this podcast before, I would wake up in the morning and I would talk to the mirror. Yeah. And the mirror would talk back. And I'd be you like, could look in the mirror. Yeah. yeah. And I'd be like, hey, we're not going to drink today. And the mirror would be like, yeah, we're not going to drink today. And then two <laughs> hours later, we're on the back deck drinking a beer. Yeah. I was like, one of us is a liar. Because we were both there and we agreed that we weren't going to drink. Yeah. And I don't know who the liar is, but here we are drinking. Yeah. So I understand your self-dialogue. I I, I, oh. I do get it. Yeah. And, and, and it's, it's throwing up red flags. And you're yep. just like, hey, those are pretty. I, I would say let's let's make up a term right now. You, you know, I like to make up words yeah, and I do. things. Uh, we'll call this a pre-problem thinking, meaning you hadn't crashed and burned. No. There wasn't a problem in that sense. He used the no. word yet. Yet, but, right. But yet but, implies yeah. that there is one But coming. there's a pre-problem, meaning are, yeah. it's already starting to change your behavior. Like you said, you're cutting your days shorter. Yep. Your mind is not on your work. Your mind is thinking about chasing that feeling. Yep. Uh, you're having the self-dialogue that's justifying what you're doing, or you're having these arguments back and forth. Think about all the energy that's going into this. Yeah, you're at work, but are you really? You know, are, are you really doing your best work? My mind can become completely consumed with it, and and you start you start yeah. like changing your habits and changing your schedules you're exactly so right. that you can arrange your life around this yep. drug. So yeah, the problem in the world's eyes hadn't started yet, but you're definitely in that pre-problem phase. And I knew that, but I put it in the back of my mind. You know, I have the mo- utmost respect for this disease and drug addiction. I do. I do. I have the utmost because the, the power it has over people. Mm-hmm. And like you, I remember you saying people who don't have experienced addiction or, or, or not an addict or an alcoholic, they really don't understand they don't understand the power. The power. It, it, you know, it's a lot of the world who doesn't really have any idea about addiction. To them, it's as simple as stopping. Just quit. Just right. quit. Okay. Right. I'd love to. That's the naive perspective. You right? know, just, but why can't you just stop? We know nowadays that opiates rewire your brain. Dude, it yeah. changes how your brain functions. And it creates pain in order to get the opiate. So it'll wow. send yep. pain sensations throughout your body in order to trigger you to go get more of the... Uh, it's, it's unbelievable how it's it a physiological disease, and that's why you can't just stop. You know, dude, I remember in the program, they had us watch a film called Pleasures Unwoven. I think that's right, Pleasures Unwoven. And it was this doctor who became addicted to opiates. So I sat in my seat. Okay, let's hear this from a doctor's perspective. And he got addicted to him. And he's like, oh, I'm a doctor. I know all the, all the, the, the risks involved. Mm-hmm. I got the playbook. Yeah, man. He's got the playbook. But he, I can't remember exactly. We, my wife and I bought the video. And it was the most interesting take on it. He went down to the southern Utah, went into the clip area, uh, slot canyons. And he had these two clear tubes with liquid in them. And like you were saying, how it rewires your brain to want to think you need this more than you really do. Mm-hmm. And it was the most interesting. And the more I learned about this disease, I didn't hate myself as much. Um, the more I learned that this in acceptance, 
you know, when I share at meetings and I, I speak other places, acceptance to me when it came, and it came at a, a very, very, it couldn't have came at a better time for me. You know, everything that happened that evening, uh, acceptance for me these days. I am an addict. I'm an alcoholic. You, if you're not cool with that, that's fine. I am. You know, my life today is far better than what it was eight years ago. So now you're cutting your days short. Yep. Uh, you're looking towards the weekend a lot more than anything than any, else. I was looking forward to that feeling more than anything. Um, dating, fishing. You've uh, found yourself a dealer. Yep, yep. Um, at this point, is the second and last wife in the picture? She, yeah. Ashley. Yep, yep. She, I, this thing, just, and it's so interesting, this thing decided to, okay, man, I, I'm going to get a hold of you right now, this disease, and I'm going to introduce this beautiful, life-saving woman into your life, and then I'm going to see if she can, if I can take this, you know, take you down with her. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this how, is this how the disease works. It's, it doesn't affect just me. It affects everybody around me, big time. Um, I met, met her. She'd bought a house right behind me. I, I, I was actively in addiction then. And, you know, we meet, we start hanging out in dinners, and we start dating. I remember taking her for a ride to show her my Christmas. I put 10,000 LED lights in pine tree in my corner. And I said, hey, let's check out. And I thought, we're hanging out. We're having a good time. She drinks. She drinks then, not now. I thought, oh, she's cool. Okay? If she didn't drink, we probably wouldn't be hanging out. She's, she's checking all she's your boxes. She's beautiful. She drinks. She likes Christmas lights. She's got a career. Yeah. It's all it's and all she's good. not clean. If you weren't going to marry her, I was. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I'm glad I beat her to you, man. Yeah. Holy crap. Ogden High guys, you know. Yeah. But um, <laughs> so uh, I remember driving with her. I'm like, okay, my addict's like, okay, it's time to introduce this girl into your your life. And I'm thinking, okay, well, I dialogue. And so I was sitting there driving with her, and I looked over at her. We, you know, I'd been drinking, and it was an evening. We were just driving around the block, and I was high. I'd chewed up some opiates earlier that day. I can't remember how many. I, it was a lot at the end, a lot. But um, I said, hey, have you ever, and I wasn't looking. I said, hey, have you ever, you know, take a pain pill and maybe drink a beer or two with it? And I took, you know, I had a beer in my lap going around the block. And I was like, okay, let's wait for a response. And she, I could feel her head look over at me, like, <laughs> and she said, what? I said it again, a little bit more nervous, and I was trying to keep it cool. You know how addicts are. I mean, oh, yeah. Good. yeah. And I said, no, man, you know, just on the weekends. She goes, no. Testing the water. <laughs> yeah, man. <laughs> Ashley's <laughs> actually got a mic in front of her. Uh, do you remember this conversation? Oh, I big absolutely time. do. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and explain it to you from your perspective. Um, I felt like. I almost blew it. Yeah, he almost blew it. when. <laughs> yeah. He asked me that question. I thought, what in the hell is he doing? I could see her. I could feel her staring at me like, oh, boy. Yeah. Yeah, It was one of those moments. And I will tell you, looking back, looking back now, all of the red flags were there for me. And I didn't see them. I know what they are now. I didn't then. And that was a huge red flag. Um, I Didn't uh, sink the ship, though. uh, I I ignored it. I thought, um, that's... That's the weirdest question. I didn't connect. That's what he does, because he then said, "Oh, oh yeah." And I just changed me either. Like a me either. Like moving yeah, those, on. Like how weird is that? Weird. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> me neither. I just wondering. I just want to know if you did, but I don't. Yeah. Wow. I mean, it's, yeah. So after that, I well, crap, man. She's not into this. So let's hide it. Okay, Brad. It's not a problem. But why are you hiding it? All that would go through my mind, and the agency thing was out the window. And, but not yet, you know, the whole self-control, not yet at that point. 
So I thought, well, okay, she's not into it. Maybe I'll just have to do it a little discreetly and, you know, she'll never know. You know, none the wiser. So it continued from there and just built and built and built. And uh, throughout the podcast, you've referenced uh, that night. The bad uh, night? The bad night. Yeah. Well, the night that saved – good night. Let me rephrase that. Bad in, in certain terms, the most beautiful thing that could ever happen to me in, a, in other ways. So walk me up to uh, what got you to that point. To that night? Mm-hmm. <clears throat> okay, I'll kind of fast forward the tape. She started queuing into it. She knew there was a problem. But the amazing thing, I have a twin brother. He didn't even know I was into the drugs. I was that good at hiding it. And I was eating 12, 15, 14 pills a day. I had to get another dealer to support my habit. So now you're at two wow. dealers. Two dealers, yeah. How's that financially for you? Oh, it was crushing. I remember going into the program. They asked me. I'm like, whoa, uh, figure out how much. And I would try and do it lightly. And I thought, okay, you need to be honest. It was, it was a mortgage payment plus a vehicle payment a month. Yeah. Oh, I'm so you're twenty five, twenty five hundred bucks. Yeah, a month. A month. So I was working nonstop. I just I couldn't keep up. I, my attic. I couldn't keep up with my attic. There was a point where he <coughs> worked. It, it was thirty seven days straight. Hmm. And he would get up. He would leave the house. He would not come home until it was nine ten o'clock at yeah. night. And I remember asking him, and these were some of those those first questions that you ask. Um, we kept our money separate at that point. Um, and what I made in, in bonus or whatever was mine, what he did in side jobs was his. And then we had our household money. <clears throat> and um, I said, look, it's not my deal. I don't, I don't need this, but where's this money going? You have nothing to show for it. <laughs> she, was, said, she was questioning me, man, you know. Which which I normally wouldn't have done. Yeah. It was it was. It but was I mean, if he's was. working thirty seven days yeah. straight, <laughs> and you guys should be sleeping on beds of money. Yeah, yeah we, we, we really I, should. And I'm like, hey man, times are tight. I need to bid these things a lot lower. Okay, that low. <laughs> so he got defensive. He did. He did. And I just oh, looked yeah. at him and thought, what? Whenever are she you cornered doing? the attic, then, boy, I got defensive. Like most addicts do. Most addicts, I would I would turn it back on her. Or something else. Not me, man. Deflect, uh, yep. distort, yep. and uh, get out. Yep. I mean, that's the playbook. <laughs> There's so many stories, man. There, when she found the, the drug, I mean, she thought she, you know, she, she almost caught me in the basement. I had hiding them down there. It was, it was, it was, it was coming to that point. Well, let me ask you this. First of all, did you did you start taking them in a different way? So were you oh, always yeah. just swallowing? Were you snorting them? Snorting were you doing them. that? Yeah. Yep. And then did that ever lead into other drugs? You know, it didn't. It didn't. I, I was just drinking then. I didn't smoke any weed then. Um, and then that's when my when I was – I, I mean, this is the dealer telling me this. <laughs> hey, man, as much as you're using, you know, uh, you're, you're using too much. I'm like, how can a dealer – that's kind of counterproductive. <laughs> when the dealer gets concerned <laughs> yeah. about you, then that should be <laughs> the ultimate And then my red other flag. dealer, the same thing. He's like, dude, you know, Oxycontin 80s, you know, this yeah. and that. And I was crushing them. And then the one, yeah, said, okay, hey, you know, before it all went down, he said, I'm going to show you how to start slamming. Meaning, slamming means shooting it. Shooting heroin. And he, he tied off. He was a heroin addict. Showed me how to do it. And I was sitting there like, what in the, what, where am I? Where, what, what, what is this? What am I? Those thoughts had come in. Thought of her beautiful face, my boy's face. My, my mother's passed away. It's like, you know, all these, right when he was telling me that. Okay, let's do it. Let's do it. You know, next Tuesday, I'm over here. It'll last you a lot longer. 
And that's the power of that disease because no matter the thoughts about family and responsibilities and yeah. when needles come out, most people do a double check like, what am I doing? Yeah. But the disease has got you at that Never point. happened to Brad. Never happened to me, man. No way. But I've been there, like you were. You're talking about. All of a sudden, you're 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 looking at yourself like an outer body out of body experience, yeah, and going, "How in the world did I get here?" Right. This. And you look around. This like, is this is not me. I'm in a stranger's house. He's going to teach me how to tie off and shoot heroin. What is going? Yeah. Yeah. Who in the world am I, and how did I get here? I remember I'd run out, and <laughs> he was out of town, and I was jonesing really bad. I remember trying to quit on my own. Oh. Flu times 10. Um, dope sick. Dope sick. Yep. Bad. Crawling around the floor, leaving the bedroom, going through convulsions. And that's that's when I knew. I remember I thought, okay, you need to see if you can get this in check, dude. But by then it was no way. Nope, I've got you. You're hooked. Mm-hmm. You're mine. You are mine. Most of the time, by the time uh, you realize you've been caught, it's way too late. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, you, that train's you, gone. You said you started, you know, in, in your in your twenties, not not uh, like abusing them, but taking them, yeah. and so then you've got twenty plus years. Your of, brain was starting to change yeah. even before you knew it was a, yeah. an issue. Yeah. yeah. So you made a deal with the drug dealer to come back next Tuesday yep. to learn how to shoot heroin. Yep, and that was on week and a half before. To me, God intervened. You know, then that evening, that everything that happened was a, was a battle between the devil and God. That evening, for me. So what happened? Oh, it got out of control. My drug addiction. She, right up until the day it happened on Saturday, um, she didn't know I was on drugs. But I, my brother helped me on a job. <clears throat> I was out. I was jonesing. I stole some medis- medication from her. Stole some medication that her mom had given her. Some opiates, and it, it back then it, did, it didn't matter. I needed something in my body. I needed something, or I'm I'm going to go crazy. I'm going to die. That's how I felt. <clears throat> Saturday morning, uh, job fell down some stairs, and everything was put into place to work in my favor that day. You know, the pe- the homeowners weren't home, which was a godsend. Okay, fell down their stairs. They gave me the garage code. I hit my head really bad. Nice little gash. Glasses fell off inside the wall. Let my brother in to the basement. I'm speaking in tongues, literally. That's what he he called my wife and said, Brad just hit his head. And I was sitting down and I was I was out of it. You know, but I, I would come to and I'd go back into this weird state of mind. I was telling him the demons are trying to leave my head. And he was tripping. This is my twin brother. He's like, Hey Brad, something's wrong with him. And I say, hey, I'm fine, I'm fine. They get me down the canyon, get me home, and she's worried sick. And they come up with a plan to get me to the hospital. And so this is Saturday morning, Saturday afternoon. They get me up to the hospital, told me something's wrong with her. I was so out of it. They, well, he won't go unless I – so we get up there, and she's there. And I'm like, oh, this is an intervention kind of – I was being a smart ass. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Take me back into her room. I vaguely remember this. Addict's worst nightmares have him drawn, blood drawn. Mm-hmm. Okay. So doctor comes in. They draw blood, come back in. He's got a list. And he, he said, hey, are you with me, Mr. Sharif? And I said, yeah. He said, everything we found in your system, <clears throat> wow. This is maybe, <laughs> he says, maybe this is a little bender thing you're doing here or you've got a problem. And so we, I can't remember the conversation after that. Meanwhile, she's out in the lobby talking to. Yeah, they wouldn't let me in. <clears throat> and I thought me. that was so strange. Uh, we bring him into the ER because he hit his head also. 
She thought I had a concussion. We we were like something something is happening with him, mm-hmm. and uh, the doctor didn't let me come into the room as he was talking with him about the blood work, and. <laughs> A social worker from the hospital came up and they were handing me some pamphlets about um, rehab facilities. And I'm thinking, yeah. what in the – why are you doing – I appreciate your services. This is not the time. I should be in there. And so I wait and the doctor walked out and he looked at me. We made eye contact and he tapped on the paper that he had laid on the table and he just kept walking. So I go into his room <laughs> and I look and – I've never seen a list that long of drugs in my entire life. And I just looked at him and it broke it. my heart how I was so pissed. Oh, I, yeah. I, Hell hath no furies a woman scorn. Okay. I thought, I do not know who he is. This he I've been living a lie. I understood we drank. I understood that in my opinion, he was drinking far too much. I had quit drinking a year prior. Um, because I overdrank one evening and he was going to divorce me because yeah. he couldn't uh, he it, couldn't it, handle that. It's like that my, was it's really like inappropriate. Me, you're yeah. using too much. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, really inappropriate drinking habits. So um, I quit drinking and uh, it, I just it, it was a lie. And I said I can't, I can't believe you. <laughs> and he's he was being so disrespectful and rude. And I said you need to leave. I love you, but I don't know what to do with you right now. And he, uh, he said, well, where am I going to go? And I said, you can go stay with your dad. I need some time. So I don't care. You're, you're out of here. I, I, got, I, I need you to leave. <clears throat> you don't, you, you don't ha- get the privilege of living in our home right now. I need some time. And, uh, and so we went. Uh, so he, I, <laughs> my brother takes me home. He's, I remember him looking at me like, are, are you my twin, man? You know, so I pack a bag. And she's, she's behind me up to the hospital still. And this is where this is where it all took a turn. Um, pack it back. I was gonna head out to my dad's house. Called my dad. Hey, I've been kicked out. <clears throat> He's like, "What's going on?" I said, "I'll tell you when I get there." So, um, I leave. I hop in the work truck, my company's work truck. Okay, company that they put their pride in me. They, you know, their name on the side of the truck. Hop in their work. This is Brad wouldn't do this, but Brad would do this. Hop in the work truck, go around the block. Forgot my glasses. Because my glasses were up on the job, had an extra set, come home, and she called some family. And her brother's a cop of all things. He's walking up the driveway. He looks at me like, you're in trouble. <laughs> His wife was with him, wife now. I'm like, yeah. She comes out, gives me my glasses, and she's I love you, but I, I don't want nothing to do with you right now. You're, you're a liar. Fine. Last thing I remember, this is the last thing I remember, is backing out of that driveway. Um, that's it. And he was missing for 12 hours. Yeah. And then I, I came to, I remember you talking about going to jail, but I came to, and I was wedged in the corner of this concrete whatever, and I had thrown up, I had messed, messed myself, peed my pants, vomited, and I had a hoodie on, and I was really achy, and I was wedged in this corner, and I stood up, and I took my hoodie off, cleaned off, and I threw it in the middle of the floor, looking around, there's really thick plexiglass, dude next to me going crazy. Like a monkey in a, in, a, in a zoo. I look across the, the way, and there's a guy over there pacing back and forth. And I'm standing there freezing. And I just thought, this is a dream. Literally thought I was dreaming. I was going to wake up. She's going to be mad. i got to make up excuses. The sheriff walks by, a lady sheriff. I remember. I'll never forget. And I'm standing there shaking. And I says, hey, hey. And she come back. And I says, I'm, she said, you're cold. So they gave me this really janky sweater. 
I said, hey, before you leave, can you hand me my boots? Everything was outside. And I was really achy. And I couldn't fit. My throat was really sore. And she looked at me and she says, you don't remember a thing about last night, do you? And I looked at her and she kind of looked at me and just shook her head. And I said, no. And I went to sit. I went to lay. She says, don't lay down. You'll die. Because I just got really dizzy. She said, when, when we threw you in here, you were on your back. And we, I was walking by and I heard you gurgling. Hence the sore throat. I had vomited and I was evaporating. Mm. So they rolled me over and then they wedged me into that corner. So I went and wedged myself back into that corner. She gave me the sweater and I fell back to sleep. I came to again and I'm like, and I, I'm in the same place. And, you know, I, I can't describe the most terrific feeling of not knowing. I remember you mentioned that, knowing what you'd done. Mm-hmm. I, I'd realized it then where I was. I was in jail. I didn't know if I was at the point in the mountain. Uh, I was in a truck. I, I know, you know, I, I, I couldn't remember. I remember backing out of the driveway, and that was it. And I sat there, I stood there, and did I kill? Some, and I was pinching myself so hard, literally thinking I was dreaming, and I was going to jolt awake, and it didn't happen. So I, I can't describe the feeling of not, am I ever going to see my family again? Did I kill somebody? Where am I? Am I ever going to see my wife again? But I think God, I'm a God dude now. I always have been, man. You know, uh, God <laughs> put me in there to, to, to think about these things. Like, dude, you know, he, you know I'm, I'm going to make you suffer through this. This is, you need to be woke up. You need, you need a good thump in the head. And this, hopefully, this is, this is it. This is your rock bottom. This is my rock bottom. And 12 hours go by and... Um, they were searching for me, couldn't find me. They thought maybe I'd gone and killed myself or if I drove off a cliff somewhere. And I did, I did contemplate that or, you know, I hated myself. I wanted to die, but I was too chicken to put the gun in my mouth. I just wanted out of this, but I couldn't see a way out. And I remember wanting rid of this disease so bad. This, then it wasn't a disease. It was just a problem. Mm-hmm. It was just a problem I had that I fantasized about having a job where I'd be drug tested. But my wife, holy crap, two days before, I got to tell you this, two days before that, it was on a Thursday, Friday, holiday season, and she knew she was tripping. And I'm thinking, you're, you're, you're destroying her. She's got to go to work and keep her composure, you know, and she was going to pieces. Uh, she come home, found a bottle, long story short, she found a bottle in my truck. I told her I'd quit drinking. I get out of there, I come home one day, and I, you know, we were on the best terms. I get in the shower. Uh, she's in the kitchen doing her thing. I get out of the shower. She's in the living room sitting on the counter in the kitchen is a bottle of whiskey with that much left in it and a tape measure. And I'm like, Oh, attic kicks in and she's in there. I'm like, okay, you need, you need to get through this. Okay, Brad, you told her you quit drinking, grab the bottle. And I was, I was just, I was doped up to you. I was gone. Walk into the living room and she's sitting there staring at me. And I says, oh, what's this? She's so mad, I could see it in her face. She goes, it's, you know, she didn't really swear much. She goes, it's effing whiskey. It's, you know, Brad, alcohol? I said, well, where'd you find it? I could just see her building up in her anger. You know, Brad, in the company work truck? I said, what? Behind the seat where? And I said, maybe Landon threw it in there. And that's when she went off. Yeah, I thought, don't blame that on Landon. (laughs) And, you know. So maybe Landon tossed it in there. So much of me wanted to believe what he was saying. And he was so good at manipulating good. the situation and 
really, I was, um, I was just as sick as he was, except I was sober. Like I, I, I would feed into that manipulation because I wanted it to be true. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, the, everything added up that he was still drinking, yet I chose to believe what he was telling me, even though actions were different than words. But so that's you, the power of denial, yeah. right? I mean, you you just wanted it to be different than it was. And it takes a while to get over that feeling of, of the fantasy we create when we're in denial about problems. So you're just mad at the alcohol that he's drinking now. You have no idea that, that he's on no. pain pills. Correct. Correct. This, so I made a big showing. Huge show. In fact, so much so that he, it, it was a guilt card. Like, I can't believe you think I would do that to you. Oh, yeah. I promised you. I would stop drinking, and, and I, I did. I could hear myself telling her that. I could hear myself. So you're gaslighting her. Oh, totally. Yeah. So when she's sitting there, I, you know, I made a big show, and it was I had to go from Wild Turkey to, to Peppermint Schnapps 101 because I couldn't afford it much anymore. But it was clear, and I thought, okay. So I went out, and I threw it in the garbage can, made sure she see me go through the motions. She goes to bed, and I just sat there like, oh, this is out of control. How can you, Brad, you can fix everything, man. You're Brad, dude. Everybody loves you. You know, you, I can't fix this. I, there's, I can't fix this. I, I'm out of control. She goes to bed. Um, I go to bed in the other room, I think. And um, I wake up. 6.30, she's up. And I, I just look at her. My heart was breaking for I didn't give a shit about myself anymore. You know, I'm, I'm a loser. Mm-hmm. So she goes to work. I see her taillights go out of sight. Routine, man. Okay. I ran out to my truck, grabbed a handful of, I think they were Oxycontins, crushed them, snorted a few through a whole bunch in my mouth, went to the dumpster, grabbed that bottle of whatever, slammed the rest of it. I was going through a fifth a day of wild turkey. Wow. Of everything else. Holy cow. Yeah. The doctor at the hospital was amazed, man. But um, go in the house, put some warm water, sugar, you know, covering my tracks. I no sooner threw it back in the can, she comes into the driveway. I didn't have time to get my composure gum like that's going to work for the smell. <clears throat> she comes up and man, she's pleading with me. And I thought, okay, here's your chance. Here's your chance. She says, and she's making me look at her. She's grabbing my face. And she says, if there's a problem, I'm here. I'm like, oh, great. And she says, if there's something wrong, Brad, it's not you. What's going on? We can get you help. What I wanted to say was, okay, I'm dying. I'm 160, 70 pounds. I'm, I've been lying to you. I'm sick. I'm scared. I'm I'm a goner. But what came out was, oh, you're tripping. It's the holidays, man. I'm okay. I'm okay. And then when she left, I started to cry. Like you're 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 gone. You're dead. And that was on the Thursday. And then that Saturday mm-hmm. is when it went down. <clears throat> I think I left off at coming to in jail, pinching myself. Yeah. Um, but not, we still don't know what happened. No. Yeah, I, I can't describe that feeling, but I'm so glad it happened. But do you know what happened? Yeah. Well, they – no, I, um, I, I, I bailed myself out. I remember you saying yeah. – you're talking about phone numbers. Mm-hmm. Who has – and um, I couldn't find any – I couldn't remember her number to save my life. So I bail myself out, and the sheriff says, oh, I got good news, bad news. I said, well, let's hear the bad news first. You know, He said, well, your wife's on the way. I said, you might as well just shoot me right now, man. <laughs> just, just put me out of my misery. He says, the good news is, is uh, your credit card went through. So she picks me up, <clears throat> and uh, she said something really interesting. When I was walking, I was trying to keep 
You smell like puke. You've been sleeping on oh, the yeah, floor of jail. Oh, yeah, I smell like vomit. I smell, you know, I, I basically died for a second. Do you remember what you told him? Yeah. She remembers how he, when you said you finally seen. Yeah, yeah. So um, as far as what happened that night, I can fill in the, the 12 hours. They were the worst 12 hours of my entire life. Um, but when we went to the jail, I got a call at 7 in the morning, hadn't slept, and his brother had kept looking at the um, intake report for the, for the jail, and finally his name appeared. They'd updated it, 7 a.m. And so his brother calls me. And um, he's in jail, and I wanted to leave in there. I was like, this is I, good, good. That's where you should be. Um, and it was starting to click for me why the social worker, super sweet person, was giving me all this information. <laughs> Rosemond's a druggie, dude. And so I called um, the, the program that Brad went into, and I said, look, I, I – my husband is doing these things. Um, he's in jail right now. I want to leave him there, but I wanted to see what it would what it would be like to get him get him in here. And uh, they said, you know, you really should probably second guess yourself and reconsider. Um, alcohol is such a dangerous uh, chemical to get off of, and mm-hmm. they don't provide yeah. the medical assistance necessary in jail. And me not having a ton of jail experience, you, uh, I didn't know any different, and so. They indicated that they could get us in, and so I went down to the jail and took his brother with me and um, went to bail him out. And I was like, well, he's already bailed out. Who would bail him out? Because his brother and I were the only two that he would have contacted. And they just said, no, he's getting ready to walk out. So we're waiting in the holding area for him to come out. And he, I, I can see him coming down the corridor, and the door opens, and he stood there. And Brad does did he did this thing with his the the facial muscles and he would he would look almost down at you he's tall anyway he's six three but he would pull his chin up and his eyes would kind of go down and I really believe truly it was just the last amount of false sense of control or, or false sense of dignity that he could scrape up in that moment I mean to to see him in that in that way his his pants were falling off of him he was in this oversized sweatshirt that wasn't his he smelled awful he was bruised up and banged up from um his arrest and um and for that in that moment it is the first time i saw him for what he had become and it was devastating and uh, i i looked at him and i was so angry but i i knew that i had knowledge um that he could get into a program. And so he started walking toward what I thought was toward me. And he was walking past me. Walk out. And he had, and his brother stood up and his, his brother, um, as he mentioned, they're twins. Gordon's a little bit bigger than Brad He's is. And he took Brad and put him right up against the wall. And he said, if you walk out of here, you are going to lose everything, your family, your job, everything. And he just stood there for a minute and Brad looked over at me and again, it's an instant. It's just a fleeting moment. And I could see Brad pausing. I I really could see Brad, not the addict. And I held my hand out and I said to him, I found help. I just need you to take my hand. Powerful. And he he waited. He waited. And I, I kept it extended. And then he took it. 
and um, we we went um, we we went immediately into. So you the, went into a detox facility, and then they put you into yep. uh, the ACT. Is that where you went? Yeah. And how many yep. days did you do there? They detoxed me for almost a week, and I was so scared that I'll never. Every every year we see alumni. We have a big alumni party, and we do the gifts and stuff. But my intake nurse, I'll never forget her. You know, they did my intake and they asked me my consumption. Of course, well, a few beers. And she's looking at me and I, I just became honest with her. I said, oh, fifth of whiskey a day. Beers when I get home, probably 25, 30 pills a day. And they put me into the detox. And still, I mean, obviously, I was still, I was full blown out. Well, I always be an addict, but I was still really, really sick then. They put me in detox and I, you know, I was really, and I was so afraid. They were giving me medication to bring me down. Mm-hmm. Give me medication. And taper I, you. Taper me off. And I, I, every day I tell the nurse, I say, I'm so, I'm, I'm, I'm afraid. She goes, I know you are, honey. I said, when, when I come off of this, I'm, am I going to get the shakes? Am I going to want to vomit? Am, am, am I going to curl up into a ball? She says, yeah, you may get a little bit of the shakes. That was my biggest fear was the coming down. And uh, I even called my dealer from, you know, we did the stupid. I remember calling my dealer from up there and I said, hey, man, he didn't recognize the number. I said, hey, I'm, it's a little bit of a fix here, but hey, I'll be out here shortly. That was my attic mind. You were having him hold your spot. Yeah, man. <laughs> don't don't fill my spot. You know, this isn't going to take long. I'll be out. You know, in my mind, I was thinking, oh, they're going to say a few things to me. I'm not an alcoholic. I'm not. A, I just I just need to get this under control. I just need to get this. You know. But on the other hand, I wanted rid of this so bad, and the wanting rid of this so bad started to win over. So Here's you, my opportunity. So you're going to ACT. How many days you spend there? Thirty days. And you've been sober now eight years. Eight years. What does life look like for both of you now? Oh, you know, man, I, I remember in my active edition, I think back when I was 13, 12, everything was just so fresh. The world, I mean, I, I love nature. I love just going outside. Uh, I got that feeling again, you know, and the nine-step promises. That's one of my favorite readings. Oh, you know, all this stuff. Step four was a huge thing for me, brutally honest, um, but I did it. You know, I thought, here's your opportunity, Brad. You can either fluff your way through this, but I said, no, this this is it. And I kept all the pencils I went through writing stuff down. Um, but my life today, dude, I, I can't describe it. You know, they, they say the pink cloud thing. That does go away, but, you know, as far as I'm concerned, I have my bad days still, but I'm doing it sober. I can be there for her sober. I can I can be there for any, I can be there for myself. And you mentioned something about your kids. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I still feel so terrible. And I, I, I you know, uh, step 10, 9, making your amends. I remember driving to that. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I haven't told you guys what I had done that evening. No, we were, we were hoping. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> kind of hoping to fill that <laughs> yeah. up. But um, they wouldn't let her read the police report to me until I was out of recovery because it was, it was bad. And so she had the police report. But what I had done <clears throat> is on my way out to my dad's house. And I don't remember a thing. I don't remember a thing. This is what keeps me solid. Uh, blow through a light down by Texas Roadhouse in Riverdale. Um, caused a little, almost caused a little fender bender there. People take notice. They call up. Hey, there's a guy all over the road. You know, go down in front of uh, the ETA bus station. Did a U-turn. No, there was a guy on his bicycle where those old warehouses are. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Went up onto the curb. Hit his back tire. He jumped off. I wasn't going very fast, thankfully. All this could have been so much worse. I could have killed him. But he jumped off. I did a U-turn, cut off a UTA bus. UTA bus goes up onto the curb. 
um, another person calls. So now there's two callers saying, hey, this guy's all out of control. Head back up into our neighborhood, go through that light again. And South Bogdan was really, really busy that night, so they had a sheriff on the way. And I go up into the neighborhood, uh, took out a couple of mailboxes. People called again, and I drove into these people's yard. And they had the ceiling to floor windows. And it was November, a little bit of snow, and my catalytic converter was overheating to the point where I had it scheduled to be fixed, and that will come into play. But the kids were in there, so what I heard heard from a neighbor that knew them. The kids see my truck coming toward the house, and they went in, but I wasn't going really fast, but I was going right for it. I turned. I didn't turn. God, power greater than myself, turned the wheel. So I didn't. They go, oh, someone's driving through our yard, Mom. They almost hit the big window. Big retaining wall into a big ditch. They thought I was going to go off into that. <clears throat> Excuse me. I clip a couple of blocks, knock. I turned again. Going to leave this yard, and they get high-centered on some, some Fitzers. Right next to the mailbox, Cadillac Cavitor so hot, it started the Fitzers on fire. And they're like, holy crap. And they said I tried to open the door, but there's enough slush to put that little fire out. Then the sheriff shows up. And I remember our attorney offered us to watch the dash cam video. And I opted not to. And he's sitting there looking at me, this attorney, and he says, the guy that's sitting here right now is not the guy that was fighting those officers. And they had to call backup. I was resisting arrest. Um, they beat me up pretty good. But I was out of control. And then... So that's what happened that evening, and a lot of things that didn't happen. I didn't kill anybody. I didn't die. Uh, devil didn't win that evening, man, which I call my disease. God prevailed. The power greater than myself prevailed. I heeded this warning. I took God for granted forever, but I, I've got another chance here, man, and all these opportunities. <clears throat> um, she reads me the police report. I just sat there, and I spe- literally speaking in tongues in this police report, and I was trying to bite them, and they put a spit rag, which is basically a pillowcase, over my head. And as she's reading this to me, I had to take it from her and make sure I was hearing this right, what this thing had turned it, what this disease had turned me into. Um, uh, I'm like, holy crap. And I heed that. I heed the police report, everything that didn't happen that evening, and my life today, I can't describe it. Wow. I feel, you know. It's mayhem. Oh, it was pure mayhem. Chaos. Yeah. 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 I have a hard time imagining you, Brad, being that guy, and I think probably people that know you do. But yeah. um, how are you, like, eight years later, like, how do you feel about the fact that at least that one night you were that guy? Oh. You know, it's so funny. I was talking to another guy in recovery. And we were, we, he said, oh, dude, you, you know, people that hear my story like, oh, you've got a story, dude. Everything did, did, didn't happen. When I, I am that guy. I am that guy. I did those things. But that's not me internally. To me, that's what this disease can do to a person. To me, this is what acceptance, not acceptance, can do to a person. To fight all those feelings, my insecurities, my, uh, my shortcomings is what turned me into that person. So that person is in me. And I know that. And I can become that person again if I don't heed those warnings and accept the fact that I am I am I have this disease. I think it's safe to say that addiction can do that to a person. Oh dude. But if addiction can do that to a person, so can recovery. And recovery exactly. can do this to a person. Yep. And the person that's sitting here telling me the story about that guy are not the same person. 
No, the person that's sitting here right now <clears throat> acknowledges the fact that I do. This is a disease, and this does not uh, define who I am. Mm-mm. Me thinking I destroyed her. Her peers know about me, and I've I've had people call me and ask me to go speak with a family member of theirs. And I'm thinking the person that's sitting here right now accepts this. One accepts of, it. One of the the, the biggest I don't things. Run from it. One of the biggest things that I had to learn, oh, um, and and for any type of family support person, it's I just I truly believe um, it's critical they understand as much about addiction as they can and how they enable and how they contribute unknowingly. And I I had to learn there are two of Brad. If she there, wouldn't have educated herself, there are two of Brad. There is the addict, and there is Brad. Um, and I I. I you know, I dated and fell in love with and married uh, and started a life with somebody I didn't even know because at that time it was the addict and I didn't know it. Um, so how is our life today? Um, I feel like our life started eight years ago and I, I know Brad and I love Brad and I'm proud of Brad. Yeah. I'm proud of me too. And that's know. good. You yeah. should be. Yeah. Look how far you've come. Look how many people you're helping. Yeah. Uh, your story is a powerful story, and I think it will help others. I and hope so. The fact that you came on and shared on the podcast. Dr. Matt, what do you think? Well, I, I mean, thanks to both of you. It's, it's really interesting to get both your perspectives on this addiction. It really is a family disease. Like you said, Brad, it affects all the people that you're close to when you're the addict. And uh, my takeaway thought actually is you've used the word acceptance a lot, and in therapy, I say therapeutic acceptance. It's empowering. When you can accept things about yourself and your situation, uh, it empowers you to make the best choices and be the best version of yourself. And if you can accept that you have a disease and that that disease brings out that other guy, um, you can also accept that the things you're doing now will never will keep you from, from that ever happening again. Yeah. So thank you so much for coming thank on you. the show. And I, I think... It's when we're in denial, we struggle, and when we can accept things, uh, it's empowering. You know, and, and to sum it up and end this podcast, I think the serenity prayer is perfect for oh, this dude, kind of thing right that. here. Yeah. I mean, it says, God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and wisdom to know the difference. There's a lot of information in that <laughs> prayer. And uh, yeah. I mean, it, 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 you know, I know you're a 12-step guy, and I think that fits you to a T, and, and I think that's words of advice for anybody in any situation. Yeah, yep. absolutely. It's the most humbling thing that's ever happened to me. Sure. The most absolutely. humbling thing. Well, we appreciate you stopping by and sharing your story with us here on Project Recovery. And in case you forgot, Project Recovery is what? It's a KSL podcast. Amen. of this program are for informational purposes only. The program is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician, licensed therapist, or other qualified health provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of something you've heard on this program. 
KSL does not recommend or endorse any specific tests, physicians, products, procedures, opinions, or other information that may be mentioned on the program. Reliance on any information provided on the program is solely at your own risk. Two friends taking pictures of the rising full moon on a summer night. Two teenage kids doing what teenage kids do. When a stranger with a gun and a death wish changed everything. It was violent, it was senseless, and I will never understand it, I will never accept it. I'm Amy Donaldson, and unfortunately, we're all too familiar with stories about how violence shatters lives. But what we rarely see is how they are rebuilt. In a new podcast, The Letter, we relive tragedy, but only so we can hear the rest of the story. The struggle to reclaim lives, the realities of grief, and the possibilities of forgiveness. I believe in miracles. Sometimes I thought, there are no miracles. Yeah, there are, and this is a big one. Follow The Letter at theletterpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts.